Well, beloved, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Exodus chapter 14. If you are indeed visiting with us today, please, you'll see one. Help yourself to one in the rack in front of you. Second book of the Bible, Exodus and the 14th chapter. As you're turning there and we settle our Bibles there, we consider this, that one of the fundamental realities of our nature is that we are not God. We are not God. Yes, we've been created by God in the image of God, but we are not God. And this morning, this may seem like the most obvious statement, but I would submit to you, it's not so obvious these days. We are not God. Of course, that truth that is a reality in almost any way you look at that truth, that truth doesn't stop us on math, on mass, I should say, from believing and buying into that lie. That we can be like God. We can act like God. We can go about things and have the kind of control that we normally attribute to deity. Is that not true? We, we function in our lives as if we must, should, can, and will have control over everything. It's an illusion. Our world every day gives us plenty of examples that confirm this truth. Here's one. Our God controls the universe. He made it. He made it. He placed the sun, the moon, the planets, and the stars precisely. Many of you know that. God's might and control are evident, in fact, the Word of God says, Romans 1.20, they're evident in the works of creation. And yet, think about the vastness of what God has created and controls, and yet, we, in contrast, cannot control the smallest, most minute virus molecule. We can't control it. We're trying, aren't we? We're going to control everything. You're going to shut this down, turn this corner, slap this on this, restrict that, bury that, crush this. We try, but you can't stop something you need a microscope to look at. It's incredible. In fact, we, and that's a very uh, soft we, have let a microscopic particle hold the world hostage. Because we're denying that we can't control it. I remember it was almost a year ago when the pandemic started. I had a dear brother basically say to me, you know what, this is how this thing ends. Until everyone realizes you can't stop it. If things, you just need to live with it. And a year later, we're still moving the yardsticks. Church, we are not God. We are not God. This year, all of our years, of all of them, testify to that truth. There is, and here it is, an infinite chasm between us and God. He is other. He is very much other. He simply stands alone. Yet humanity, since our inception, has sought to be God and bridge that gap. This is what's plagued. This is the true plague on humanity, that we have sought to bridge that gap. Think about Genesis 3. Remember that text? We thought we could be, what did it say? Genesis 3, 5, like God. That's how we were sprung into a curse, because we thought we could be like God. So we broke the rules. Genesis 11, we thought we could be like God. How? Just build a tower. Let's get to God. It's all an illusion. And on it goes. There's nothing new under the sun. Trying to be God, reach to him, be him. 
In the book of Exodus, we've witnessed a king of Egypt, king of the world at that time, that was considered a god. They looked to Pharaoh, remember, we've looked at this, as a god. He was a god figure. And a kingdom that believed in many gods. He was a god of gods in this pantheon in Egypt of gods. That's what we've seen in our study. False god after false god. And what have we also seen? Exposed. Exposed for the fraud that they are. We have watched that so-called God and his gods, Pharaoh and his gods, be brought to their knees. Plague after plague, sign after sign, wonder after wonder, exposing the lie. Each act of God, like pulling the curtain back and showing the Wizard of Oz. That's what we've seen. Pharaoh, he is not God. This book and these opening acts of the true God on Egypt have demonstrated that truth conclusively, and it is this, Pharaoh is not God. And with that, these opening acts have also demonstrated that Egypt's, do you remember the so-called experts that they partied out, the magicians, revered as gods themselves? This book has shown that they are not. Their tricks ran out. None in Egypt, in fact, was powerful enough to stop the frogs, the hail, or the darkness. Of course, that was the case for Israel, too. They couldn't liberate themselves. Remember, we've talked about that. They couldn't liberate themselves. They can't free themselves. And even the human liberator, Moses, protesting his ability to speak, fearing Egypt. He, too, Moses, revealed not to be God. Speaking for God, yes, but not God. And maybe an onlooker would look at this account and say, well, who's in control here? Who's in control? A lot of people are claiming control over Egypt, over this, over that. But who is in control? No, Westmount, we've seen no human being even coming close. We've only seen human beings humbled before the one true God. Our study of Exodus has shown us over and over again what? God, Yahweh, is God alone. He stands alone. There is no other. Only the hand of God caused God's people to multiply under oppression. And isn't that funny today? When you hear about grace life doubling in size. In oppression. And they've doubled in size. There's nothing new. Only the hand of God spared God's servant Moses and placed him in Egypt. Only the power of God could change water to blood and could change the weather. Only the judgment of God could not only kill livestock but take human life. Only a sovereign God in complete control, there it is, can harden the human heart. Cause Israel's enemies to give freely. And as we've seen these past two weeks... Only a sovereign God can deliver his people by the blood of a lamb. And then begin the process of establishing these freed people as a nation. You have to imagine to any corporate planner, anyone managing people, any HR specialist, they'd say, well, that's impossible. Take this ragtag group and make them a nation. It just doesn't happen. And in the wilderness, that's just not happening. But God does it. And mark it, only God can free and unite. Only God can free and unite. Well, today we'll see one more capstone demonstration of who this God is. 
That is God bringing salvation to his people while bringing judgment on his enemies. That's right, Mark, it's salvation through judgment. That is what we will see in Exodus 14 today. This encounter in the Red Sea is well known. Maybe immediately as you hear the Red Sea march, things are conjuring up in your mind. It's a well-known event. In fact, so well-known, even in the Old Testament, it's referenced over 25 times. This march through the Red Sea, God bringing his people through the Red Sea. That this morning, Westman, I want you to consider, in light of the human players, in light of maybe your experiences with this text, what you know, in light of your own life today, March 2021, I want you to consider the gap. You're going to see a gap today between who you are and who God is. And that is where this chapter, this text, is going to take us this morning. This parting of the Red Sea is a picture, a pointer to a truth, a much bigger truth. This momentous event as God's people are birthed will show us powerfully who we are not and who God is. We're going to see that on the canvas today. And with that, if that is true, and we'll see that it is, if that's true, and as you consider the event today, there are essential implications of that truth. Well, but I can't say this enough. It's not a matter of someone to nod their head and say, well, yes, God is God, and I'm not, and I get that. No, 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 no. Truth has implications. This is one of the problems today. Truth has implications. And you live out truth. This text is not just revealing who we are not and who God is. It's doing that. But also, we will see today, it's what we cannot do cast against what only God Almighty can do. And we cannot miss this. This is Exodus 14. This is the point. What we cannot do. That may be 15th century BC, but I want you to consider in the century today what you cannot do versus what God alone can do. That's where we need to orbit and settle our hearts today. Deliverance, salvation is found nowhere else. Listen. From virus is one thing, from hell is another. That's what God and God alone can do, only he. Crucial today, crucial, that's it. And I pray wherever your soul is this morning, everyone's soul is somewhere right now, in the confusion, in the chaos, in the experience in life, wherever it is, I pray that you'd either be renewed or maybe for the first time realize it's only God that can liberate only God that can deliver. Only God alone that has salvation and that will bring it. So let's begin with our analysis, with the first contrast that opens this chapter. Here it is. Our limited vision and God's absolute sovereignty. Our limited vision and God's absolute sovereignty. Follow with me, verses 1 through 9, chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haheroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. 
When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pi Haharoth in front of Baal Zephon. You know, the, the people, as you consider the context here, have been freed, newly, recently freed from the clutches of Pharaoh in Egypt. In fact, look at chapter 13, verse 20. They're well on their way from that freedom. Chapter 13, verse 20, it says, And they moved on, this is after liberation, after Pharaoh says go, they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. They're on the edge of the wilderness. That's the Sinai Peninsula. That would be, to be clear, not Egypt. Think about that. You've been in bondage in Egypt. You're on the cusp of being not in Egypt. That would be exciting. And grab it. They're on the cusp of stepping out of the shackles, literally and figuratively, of what they've been in. Can you just imagine? Now stop for a moment and consider the logical direction ahead. They'd be eager for what? I mean, of all directions that the freed slave is ready to go, it's where? Anywhere but here, right? I'm free. I'm free. That's whatever step takes them away from Egypt, oppression, bondage. In one logical sense, we get that. By any of our measures, this makes sense. That's what we do. But hold on to that and look at God's instruction. Verse 2. He says what? Turn back. Do you see that? Turn back. And not only turn back, but look at the next one. He says, turn back and what? In camp. Set up shop. In camp. That would be not only turn back, but sit there for a bit. I should mention the specific places that are noted there. You see the three. We can't know for sure. Antiquities give us reasonable guesses to proximity, but ultimately, and this happens often with geography, especially in the Old Testament, we can't know for sure. The detail, however, really that we need to know is found, look in verse 2. They're to encamp, but look, between Migdol and the sea. Now, we know where the sea is, and they're to camp between someplace inland and the sea. That's key. And which way are they to face? Right? Balsephon, to look inland, so their backs are to the sea. So not only turn back, but turn back with your back to the sea and stay there. Wow. By the way, if you look at verse 3, it only heightens the situation here. Verse 3, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. So not only does God say turn back, not only does he say put your back to the sea, but that wicked ruler now knows you're hemmed in. What's going on here? He will say, Pharaoh will do just that, by the way, as we read already, and he recognizes that Israel is a sitting duck. It would be natural at this point, if you're following along, to ask, why would God have them do this? Maybe you're asking that now. Why would he have them do this? Well, verse 4 provides the answer right from God. Look at verse 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. Wow. But then this, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, 
and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Don't miss that, the gravity of that statement. That is sovereignty, is it not? This is how it's going down. I know what's going to happen, and I'm going to get glory over this. This is how it's going to happen. Two things we must not miss here. One, God will harden Pharaoh's heart. We'll see that again. To do what? Pursue. Do you see that? We see God's sovereign will in operation again. Look at it. Orchestrating, moving his people into the place he wills. And then working in the heart of Pharaoh to what? To harden it for God's purpose. Do you see that? We saw before deliverance, and now we see that again after God remains the same. That's one. Two, God says it in the process. Look at it. In the process of all of that, he will get glory. And we just have to pause for a moment and say, an onlooker would say, how in the world would God's people get glory? What would the natural eye say? That looks foolish, right? Turn back in camp against Pharaoh and all those chariots. But God says, sovereign God says, I will get the glory. And even more, look at it, the Egyptians shall know what? I am the Lord. This is what we've been tracking through this whole account. As you consider this account, maybe you're asking, how then will God be glorified in this? How can one be glorified when they back their own people into a corner? It's a good question. I have to tell you, Westmount, by the providence of God, this very spot was where I was writing my sermon when I got the news about Pastor James. You can't make this stuff up. When I heard the news, I literally saw, I was, you know, I'd paused because I knew the hearing was coming. I saw him in his orange jumpsuit and saw the judge recite what the judge had to recite. Right here, I received word on James. Pastor James, following his Lord, encamped at Reman Center there Friday with his back to the sea. Right? Lord, I had a moment. Okay, two more months away from Aaron and his children, Isaac and Caleb, in with all those criminals, the righteous man in with all those criminals, his back to the sea. And as I paused for my study, at my study, lamenting, praying with a very heavy heart, I looked at Pastor James, led to prison again, his back to the sea, and I considered other pastors I know. You talk about this season, I thought about two other brothers I know. One just got fired because, as the congregation said, it was too much Bible. So they let him go. No, you can't make this stuff up. Too much Bible in these times, by the way. He was fired in the middle of a pandemic because he gave them too much Bible. Another one, many of you know him, we know him very dearly, is really struggling to just remain in his pastorate. Why? Because he's firm on the word of God. Incredible. And as I considered you, Westmount, faithfully following, maybe some of you, I know many of you, have your backs to the sea right now. As I considered the reality of God's people, I realized something else. And I know you're feeling this right now. Our limitations, our short-sightedness, our inability to see thoroughly, even more when we can look up, when our backs are to the sea, we only see this. Look at verse 5. This is what we see. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? 
that we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea, Pi Aharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. You know, consider that account. I want you to look at those verses again. And what's your focus? What are your eyes drawn to? Is it the huge army? Is it the 600, note this, chosen chariots? Is it the pursuit? Maybe you jumped right to the overtaking. Do you see that in verse 9? Wow. Well, let, let me remind you, and let's let the text remind us of this detail. Look at verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel. These events, beloved, were ordained by God. Do you see that? The hardened heart that led to the pursuit. All of this is orchestrated by God. This is God's hand in all the details, absolutely sovereign over all of it. The short-sighted may look at such a scene, maybe like we're looking at scenes today and say, God, this doesn't make sense. I don't understand. Why this? Why, Lord? Why like this? And we need to understand something here, and it's this. Look at verse 4. And let this press into your heart. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And, this, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Beloved, whatever has put your back to the sea this morning, let those parallel truths there be your comfort today. Look at them. One, God will get glory in this. Listen to me. If you're in Christ this morning, if you're here in Christ, whatever it is that has your back to the sea, God will be glorified in it. He will be. And two, someone, maybe a few, maybe many will know because your back is to the sea, because God will get glory, someone, somewhere will know that he is the Lord. What an encouragement. In our limited vision, and can we just be honest this morning? We don't have eyes to see. We don't. And we're going to see the result of our hearing issue or viewing issues. In our limited vision, in this fog of oppression, darkness, and decay, let us catch a glimpse of the absolute sovereignty of God and God alone. It's amazing. This account is saturated with details about who? Egypt. And, and, and what is amazing is it really is a picture of how we are. Again, I don't know what has your back to the sea this morning, but I know this because I'm guilty of it too. Man, I can tell you all the details of my trial. And how often do I need to pull up and see the sovereign hand above it? I can count all 600 of those chariots. But what this text is doing is saying, look above it, look beyond it. At the sovereign hand. That's our limited vision and God's absolute sovereignty. That's just one. Secondly, our unending sin. Our unending sin and God's overriding mercy. Our unending sin and God's overriding mercy. So Pharaoh and the mighty Egyptian army have arrived and overtook Israel. What a scene. There's nowhere to go with their backs to the sea. And if you're reading it for the first time, you say, what's next? Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. 
and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. We just noted our limited vision. And one thing, Westmount, we have to comment on, the one thing always tied to short-sightedness is this, mark it. Every time you're plagued with short-sightedness, you can guarantee this is going to come, fear. Every time you give way to short-sightedness, it's fear. That is why, that is why, children fear noises, needles, and the dark. Because they're just living in the moment, right? Adults, at least many of you, are fine with needles because you know it'll go away. Your vision is higher than that. You know what it's doing. That's why when we have vision that's restricted and just focusing on that needle or the dark... Right? Like the little ones often can do. It's because of short-sightedness. It's the same principle for the Christian. And it's the same principle for Israel. They can't get their eyes off Egypt. Look at verse 10. Look at how vivid this is in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, can you just imagine? Here's the 600 chariots maybe cresting, coming close. They draw near the people of Israel. They lift up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marching after them. And then what? They feared greatly. Well, of course because they're only looking at 600 chariots coming toward them. And a visual fixation on circumstances inevitably leads to this. Verse 11. Every time. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. That's just got to grab you, doesn't it? If you've been tracking in this Exodus study, you say to yourself, who are these people? Have they not watched what's going on? Oh, how close we are to this. The grumbling returns, the rebellion rises again, the sin that never ends. And sin, by the way, like all sin, note this, you've heard me say this before, like all sin, is completely irrational. Sin is irrational. It makes no sense. Just like you look at this vista and you say, it doesn't even make sense what they're saying. It doesn't make sense. That's sin. Look at verse 11. Are there no graves in Egypt? What, a, what, what are they saying? Right, so Yahweh's plan was just to let you die elsewhere. After all you've seen. And then look at this. What have you done to us? Can't you just see it? The, the lament? What have you done to us, Yahweh? Right, so deliverance is now worthy of protest. God in his grace can say, I have just delivered you from the wicked ruler of the land. And the sin doesn't end. Look at verse 12, it just doesn't stop. They cry out to Yahweh, did you not hear us? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. So you would actually prefer bondage. And not only that, Israel then declares, look at it. Bondage is better than this. You see that? Wow. And there it is, beloved. We just need to pause for a moment. There it is. There's such a uh, theology of sin here that 
we could really camp out the pinnacle, not only of short-sightedness, but of sin's logic. It would have been better for us in shackles. Sin's logic declares, no, it trumpets, I'd rather be in slavery. Every time we choose sin and we choose our way versus God's way, we'd say, you know what, God? Thanks for the freedom. Thanks for the redemption. But I'm choosing darkness and I'm choosing slavery. Mark it, every time we choose sin, that's what we're choosing to do. We can shake our heads at the Israelites until we realize we do exactly the same thing. Again, I know what this is like. Sin is absolutely irrational. And church, can I make this clear this morning? That was, in one sense, sin, and that is what sin continues to be today. Every time you sin, you're saying, I'd rather have death than life. Every time you choose rebellion to God's standard, listen, wrestle with this text, every time you do that, you employ this fallen, cursed logic that somehow the bondage will be better. And we say things like, well, for this moment, and grace will be ahead, and God understands. But every time we do it, we say, I'm choosing bondage. We marvel again at Israel here, and but we do the same. Let's just see a simple pathology right here. We fix our eyes on the circumstances, the 600 chariots, which breed what? Not just fear, great fear. Then the fallen reasoning starts because of where our eyes are fixed. We cry out. No, we protest then what? To go back into bondage and then to cap it all off in our sinfulness, we say, because that's better. Thankfully, the end of this story and the story for every child of God, praise the Lord, is not the unending sin. This is where I always want to say when people wrestle with God's sovereignty, aren't you glad you're not in control? Those people that fight to say, well, I have a, you know, I, I, I kind of have a choice. And I'm saying, no, I don't want any of it. God, take me, all of it. My will, aligned to yours. It's not, when we think, think about this, it's not the end of the story. Look at this. God calls their eyes to look elsewhere. This is fantastic. Look at verse 13. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Can you see that? Look at those verses. God doesn't just say, fear not and stand firm. He doesn't just say that, right? He doesn't say, just buck up under it. This is incredible. But do so, fear not, stand firm, and this, verse 13, see. This is where your eyes need to be. Not on the 600 chariots. This is where they need to be. See the salvation of the Lord. That is where your eyes need to be, on God's work, not your reasoning. And by the way, I love this. As for those Egyptians that you're staring at, this is great. Look at the end of verse 13. It's almost as if God says, take a long last look at them, because you know what? You're never going to see them again. Isn't our God unbelievable? Incredible. And to seal the reality here of who is the one doing all the work, Look at this. Again, let this press in. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. But what, what can we do? You have only to be silent. I mean, nothing? No. Pray, get on your knees, beg God, yield to his will, be obedient to his commands. Pray, 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 and then when you're done, you keep praying, and then just be silent and watch what God will do. Could there be, Westmount, more encouraging words in all of Scripture 
for the one with their back to the sea than this. Is there more encouragement? The Lord will fight for you. Israel, the Lord will fight for you. Pastor James, the Lord will fight for you. Sandy, the Lord will fight for you. Westmount, the Lord will fight for you. Church, the Lord will fight for you. How are we going to do this? What do we do now? Oh, be silent. Watch the Lord fight. Called out ones, that is the truth. And I only ask, in light of all these texts, do you believe it? Do you believe this text? Do you believe this truth of your God? That he will fight for you? Do you believe it? Or do you feel like you just need more machinery? You need an arsenal. You need a plan. No, be obedient. Stand for the Lord. Courageously be firm in the Lord and watch what he will do. If you're doubting this morning like Israel, hear the Lord of hosts in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Now, we just need to pause here for a moment as we come to this spot in the account for an important observation. We don't want to miss this. And we can miss this if we go too quickly. I want you to consider Israel for a moment. That's right. Zone in on Israel. And they are a picture of what? What have we just been saying? They're a picture of sin, right? They're a grumbling machine right now. They've been a constant fountain, in fact, of complaint. And even more sinister, of rebellion. In the middle of this delivery. Isn't that incredible? They're just complaining and grumbling and they would have done it this way and they'd actually be rather there, right? And this is, noted unending sin that's cast against what? Remember chapter 12? Unending sin that the backdrop is what? Deliverance. God has delivered them from Egypt. Their firstborn sons preserved. Deliverance, and by the way, deliverance had had what? Looting and plundering. Remember that? God says, I'm not only freeing you, I'm giving you treasure along the way. And even more, deliverance from Pharaoh on to who? This is what we looked at last week. From Pharaoh on to the Lord. You're in the care of the Almighty. You were under slavery of Pharaoh. Now you're in the hands of the Almighty. He is leading you now. Remember the pillar of cloud and fire leading by day and night. No breaks there. He leads all the time. Amid all this sin, protest, and rebellion, God's providential care has not stopped. Look at verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Look where the Lord moved. Look at verse 20. Coming between Egypt and Israel. Do you see that? Picture at Westmount, Israel still grumbling, still rebelling, still sinning, while God begins what? Saving, protecting. Christian, I'm reminded of this eternal truth of our merciful God. You may know it, Romans 5, 6. But God shows his love for us, and then 
in that while we were what? Still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't wait for us to get our lives on track. Have you ever heard that? I just need to get right with God. I need to get back on track. No, that actually is impossible. You can't do that. Christ didn't wait for us to seek him. And naturally, we don't. Psalm 14, Romans 3, we'll never seek God without his sovereign grace. We'll never seek him. The Bible can't be clear. Beloved, like Israel here, we are lost without God's initiating sovereign mercy. We are just lost without it. How can we not drop to our knees in this contrast? Do you see it? I pray this truth makes you just fall to your knees and say, Oh God, you are good. While we were still sinners, like Israel here, mid-sin, and God is moving to buffer, protect, and save. Just note it. They haven't cleaned themselves up. In fact, they pushed into their sin, and yet God is saving. Of course, God's mercy on his people has only just begun here. Let us now see the salvation of the Lord, the mercy promise. Look at verses 21 and 22. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The understatement there in verse 22 may be the most remarkable aspect of this account. It's just so understated, isn't it? And they went into the sea. And they went into the sea. I mean, we've already learned that God controls the sea and nature. Remember the first plague. He turned the water to blood. God's mighty hand described as effortlessly dividing the waters. Don't miss that. We're talking about supernatural, monumental acts that are effortless for the Almighty. That is, by the way, the omnipotence of God, the all-power of God. It cannot be conceived. It's just stated, like here, to be received in faith. And the plainly stated salvation, look at verse 22, just so plainly, the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. Waters, a wall, the right hand, and on their left, just so plainly stated. No, I cannot envision what this would be like. I know you're asking that. Can you just imagine what this looked like? No, no, we can't. In our limited minds, we can't imagine the walls of water. Many can't, and by the way, don't fall into the trap of trying to reason it away. Again, I had a lot of brevity this week reading about people that said the water was six inches deep, or that it was actually frozen. Yes, I read that. It was actually frozen. And I had a moment, and I needed it this week to just say, what unbelief. What unbelief. God can raise the dead, and you believe that, but you have trouble with imparting the Red Sea. Unbelief. Church, like all the acts of God we've just seen in our study, and so too here, and this time, these standing walls of water, picture that, pillars of mercy as Israel passes through. That's the picture. Pillars of mercy. And so our unending sin and God's overriding mercy, one more contrast here, God's right judgment and our right fear. God's right judgment and our right fear. Of course, those walls of water do not stand forever, right? They're not just erected to just stand. Like our lives, those walls of water are on the clock, right? They will not stand forever, right? Those beacons of mercy will not stand forever. God brings mercy to Israel, but to Egypt, all that remains for them is what? Judgment. 
the flood of judgment. Look at verse 23. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Look again at that, verse 28. Not one of them remained. From the hardened hearts, foolish to pursue, to the clogged wheels in the account, God has brought it all to pass right up to this end. And while God is mercy, he equally is, and let's not miss this, it's important for our times today, while God is mercy, and he is completely, he is also justice. Our God is a God of justice. That's what you want now, isn't it? You want God to bring justice to the lies, to the oppression. Aren't you thankful God is that? Yes, as supernaturally as God parted the waters in mercy to let Israel pass through, through the hand, by the way, and staff of Moses, so too, so too, this act of God in judgment. As Moses again extends his hand, and while Egypt attempts to pass, a flood the picture of right judgment, and note that adjective, right judgment, is captured perfectly in verse 28. Again, we need to just look at that again. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh, so that's no one left that had followed them in the sea. Not one of them remained. That's so key. The waters have engulfed all of them. All of them. Not one of them remained. Pharaoh and all swallowed up by the sea. And beloved, that is your picture of justice. And we need to be reminded of this. It's justice deserved, is it not? Have we not been tracking in this account? This is justice deserved. I mean, you could say Pharaoh had 10 opportunities to relent. He brought this on himself. And more, Romans 5 tells us we're sinners by nature. If we're sons of Adam and daughters of Adam, and all of us are created and flow from Adam and Eve, we're sinners by nature. It's in our DNA. Again, I've said that so often. You just look at little children and you recognize what our DNA is. You have to teach them righteousness. Romans 6 tells us we're sinners also by choice. In fact, you know the word used in Romans 6? It's this, slaves to sin. Slaves to sin. As such, Israel spared as they were in the 10th plague by the sovereign mercy of God and spared for today. Listen, tomorrow Israel's going to need more mercy. And we're going to see that in the weeks and months ahead. They'll need much more mercy. For now, let us see what a vision of the judgment of God does to Israel. Because judgment always does something. Look at verse 29. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel 
that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Israel is spared. They're on dry ground. You see that? But as they walk, their eyes catch something. Do you see that? What do they catch as they're walking? It's almost like they can't help but see this. End of verse 30. The Egyptians dead on the seashore. Can you imagine that scene? Washing up like driftwood and seashells. Egyptians littering the beach. Two things command our attention with that picture here. Number one, the implicit, and see it, Westmount, the implicit connection here is that the sight of death arouses fear. Do you see that? The sight of death arouses fear. Israel sees the corpses and says, presumably, that could have been, no, that should have been us. Do you see that? How did we walk on dry ground and how are these corpses here? That should have been us. Those that have had near-death experiences, like I have, recognize that. Do you not? When you come out of it, you realize, wow, that should have been me. I should be dead. There's something about seeing a dead body that makes you sober up fast. There's something about seeing death that makes you think about your death. Have you ever had that? For those of us that have seen death, there's something about seeing death that makes you think about your own mortality. And is it any surprise then that no one wants to see the dead anymore? Nobody, you go to a funeral, they don't want to see that. In fact, they want to just usher off the whole thing as quickly as possible. And is it any surprise, concurrent to that, that no one fears God anymore? No one fears the judgment of God anymore because they don't want to see death. They just want to look at it. Less death equals less fear, right? And isn't that another equation Another hashtag we can throw out today. Less death equals less fear. So let's carry on. We have become so comfortable with living in denial. We really have, have we not? We're so comfortable denying death that when it creeps up on you and it's brought in front of your face, you're paralyzed with fear. I'm going to die. But you cannot deny death. You can close the casket lid on another, but you can't close your own. So what will you do? You, me, all of us, we will die. Whether it's COVID or a car accident, we're going to die. We all will die. So the question is not, how do I prevent death, right? How do I put it up? And do you see the problem today, the disconnect? Well, how do I prevent death? Well, you can't. The answer to that question is actually a fact of life on earth. Yet people continue to deny that reality and live in a fear of death. And as fear takes a deep hold on one's soul, they see corpses on the seashore. And the problem today is that they let that fear lead them to denial. Beloved, that is the problem today. Wrong fear that leads to denial. Mark it like Pharaoh. Which brings us to the second reality we need to get a hold of here, and we close with this. Verse 31. The people feared the Lord... And they believed in the Lord. Do you see that? To be clear, this is right fear. That's right, right fear. This is the healthy fear that says, I'm going to die. I can't stop it. I'm going to die. I don't know when, but I'm going to die. The right fear that looks at death and says, actually, you know what? I do deserve death. 
that looks at the corpses on the seashore and says, well, that could have been me. It should be me. I know what I deserve. The right fear that remembers the plagues, the preservation, and the power of God. That is right, reverent, truthful, and holy fear that believes in who? Verse 31. The Lord. The Lord. Do you see that? And this is important for us this morning because we live in a sea of wrong fear. All kinds of wrong fear today. In fact, I don't even need to give a a little sermon on that. Wrong fear is paraded everywhere today. It's all over the place. Wrong fear that is misplaced. That's, again, what we hear and, and see. and It's taught and digested and taken in and transmitted and communicated. Wrong fear. Jesus had something to say about wrong fear. Did he not? He did. Again, we must end with this little excursus in the Gospel of Luke. You can turn with me if you want, but or you can just listen and take it in. Luke 12. Jesus speaking about fear says this. Luke 12, verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more than they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, emphatically, fear him. If we could paraphrase today, don't fear something you cannot see, in a sense, something that may take ability or extra days of life. I'll tell you, Jesus says, what to really fear. Not one who can only touch the body. Jesus Christ says, fear the one who can take body and soul. Because we all will die, and then the other reality is we're all going somewhere after we die. Chapter 13. People came to Jesus with current events, maybe like a pandemic. There was a tragedy, a tower fell. Pilate was up to his shenanigans there, mingling blood with sacrifices. People are worked up to Jesus. They're like, what are we going to do about this temporal thing? 18 people died. Look at it, chapter 13. There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. You can imagine, right? They're worked up. And Jesus answered him, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? In other words, no. Everyone dies. No, I tell you, and look at where he focuses their attention, unless you repent, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You can see him, he's kind of, he knows the minds, right? He says, okay, I know what, those 18, the tower fell on them in Siloam and killed them. Do you think, verse 4, that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you what? Repent. You will all likewise perish. Jesus always taking us from the temporal, the 600 chariots, and taking us to the eternal. What matters? And finally this, Luke 16. You almost imagine as you track the argument in the Gospel of Luke that they're just not getting it. The temporal eternal, like we're not getting it today. So fixated on the temporal Jesus told them this parable, starting verse 19, chapter 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, hell, Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Now note, he's no longer in time, right? His life has expired, but he's crying out. He's like, okay, I get it. It's real. I get it. I get it. 
Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember, you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But he is now comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to there may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, send them to my father's house, right? You can just picture his father's house has a ton of skeptics, right? I need to see to believe. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment, lest they go to hell, in other words. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They have this book. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. In other words, they need a flashy sign. They need someone coming back from the dead, and then they'll believe. Oh, yes, we're on board then. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither shall they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let me ask you something. Is that not today? I just need to see to believe. Yes, I understand all those things about God, but right now I'm dealing with this. We see in this text there is a great chasm. Do you see that? Between heaven and hell, there's a great chasm, and it's been fixed. And by the way, no one passes that. Verse 26. Friends, that's like the gap between us and God. Do you see it? Do you see the connection today? We are not God. We are not God. We cannot bridge that gap. We are not God. This morning, you have seen that infinite gap between who you are and who God is. You cannot bridge it. Just like the Israelites could not part the water. Your only hope, like Israel, is to cry out to the one who has power over death. Jesus Christ, the bridge, the Lamb of God. Only his work can save you after death. That's it. We cannot cross that chasm. And until we understand that, we will not have hope. We can't cross the chasm. And that is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, to a church that maybe had wayward folks, Maybe folks that were in rebellion and didn't believe. He said this, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Only Christ can span the chasm. And I pray that he's done that for you today. Father, we thank you that you indeed do bring us across an impassable gap. Father, we're reminded in this text that we can do nothing to bridge that gap. Oh, how we try. Oh, how we think we can. But Father, remind us, flowing out of this text today, that we cannot, even for those that recognize it and repented, but Lord, can fall to those lies each day. So God, help us as we look to live out this truth that you are sovereign over salvation and sanctification so that our lives indeed may be a glory to you and so that those around us would know your name, the Lord. Amen.